0: All right, welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan and Janelle. We're here today with Dr. Candy Can from Baylor University. If you like this podcast, even before you start listening, you think you will, so make sure you stop right now what you're doing, share it, review it, uh, and give it five stars. Go online. We're at brewtheology.org, at brew Theology on Instagram and Facebook, and brew underscore theology on Twitter. If you want to start a chapter where you are, um, hit us up, Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org. Well, Dr. Candy K. Kan is an associate professor of religion at Baylor University, Sikkim. She teaches courses in world cultures, social world, world religions, Buddhism, and death and dying, which is what we'll talk about today. In the BIC, those who don't know, that's Baylor Interdisciplinary Core. I got a couple of friends who were in there back in the day. Now it's even better now that Candy's teaching there. And she received both her master's and PhD in comparative religion from Harvard University, an MA in Asian Religions from the University of Hawaii at, am I saying this right, Manoa? Yes. That's and right. a, uh, a Bachelor of Arts in Asian Studies in English from St. Andrews in North Carolina. Dr. Kan's research focuses on death and dying and the impact of remembering and forgetting in shaping how lives are recalled, remembered, and celebrated. You can find more of her work and what she's up to over at Candy K. C-A-N-N.com, we'll have that on the notes as well and look her up there's some great stuff on there great resources and videos and you've been doing work for so long and i just feel like i missed out because i went to baylor too early and i didn't get to take <laughs> your classes but i still need to go in and now that we're in the same city and, and if i can if i can sneak in that'd be great do i have permission
1: that'd be great yeah come by anytime
0: <laughs> Awesome. So uh, first off, we always like to talk about just anybody who's gathered around the table. Uh, what's your background, your story, your history, religious pedigree? Uh, how did you become you before you are becoming you?
1: That's a great question. How did I become me before becoming me? Well, I will talk about um, I've always been interested in religion and i um, I just wasn't sure whether I was going to go into the practitioner side or the academic side. And when I was about, I don't know, 15 or 16, I, quote unquote, started my own religion. And I look back now and I realize that that was actually a study of all the different components of what makes up a religion. So I wrote a creed, I made a song, we had outfits, we had taboos, we wore uh, necklaces. And then I invited all my friends over and I baptized everyone in our backyard swimming pool. And then I paraded us down and up the street. And my stepfather at the time uh, was very embarrassed. Uh, by me and my friends. Of course, we were being typical teenagers, right? Um, But looking back, I realized that was actually my first academic exploration of what is religion and asking about the different components of religion. I went back and forth for a long time trying to decide whether I wanted to become an Episcopal priest uh, in the Episcopal church and um, was actually going to Good Samaritan Episcopal Church in in Palolo Valley in Hawaii. And um, my mom died, and I started thinking about the Nicene Creed in a lot of detail, and whether I really believed in the resurrection after death. And around the same time, I took um, a course during my master's degree at the University of Hawaii in Manoa, On It was called Death and Dying in Buddhist Cultures. And every week for about six weeks, we spent all day Saturday in a different Buddhist temple. So one week was a Chinese Buddhist temple. One week was a Vietnamese Buddhist temple. And if you've been to Hawaii, you know, there's as many Buddhist temples as there are Christian churches. So um, it was an adventure, to say the least. And then we would each have a vegetarian um, meal from that tradition. And so the week we we're at the Vietnamese Buddhist temple, we had Vietnamese food. The week we we're at um, the Japanese Buddhist temple, we had Japanese food. And then the priests would come in and actually perform the funerary chants. And so it was like a multi-sensory experience of death and dying from a Buddhist perspective. And I fell in love so that was when I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to Harvard. I'm going to get my PhD. I'm going to study religion, and I'm going to do this. So um, that was kind of the beginning, and I've been doing it ever since.
0: I don't know if I know <laughs> anybody. I mean, everybody has their own unique story. We tell people that. Like, we tell kids, oh, you're so unique and special. But no, that actually really was. <laughs> Not just yeah. to the kids out there. Your stories are also important. But uh, no wonder why like, your your stepfather was like, "What is going on with this girl?"
1: <laughs> oh, he was just mortified, and he was. A Roman Catholic who converted to the Episcopal Church when he got divorced and um, then married my mom. So he was really traditional. And so, you know, he also voted against women in the church and the Episcopal Church. So just watching me like pretend to be a priest and then on top of it, like making up all this stuff, he was just so disturbed.
0: (laughs) That's fantastic. Um, All right. So then you got, you know, you got into this the history of death. There, there's so much history there, and, and there's a lot to unpack, but could you give just the listeners a brief history? I know it's based mostly on white Protestant male thought, um, and then we'll get into some of the problems that you have with that. So what's the overall history that we have um, and that you stumbled upon early on with just basic grief, most, mostly grief and death?
1: Yeah, so... Really, when I started looking at death, dying, and grief, I started looking at these kind of popular memorialization rituals. And then from there, I started studying um, grief and uh, models of grief theory. I um, became certified in thanatology from the Association of Death Education and Counseling. And then I really did a deep dive on all these different models of grief. And what I found over the years is that they're very white. They're very Protestant. Um, they tend to be uh most of the models, of course, Freud would probably be the original one, right? Who who kind of talks about this pathology pathologization of grief. Um and he he kind of looks at, you know, getting stuck in grief and so he's not a huge um he really sees grief as somewhat unhealthy, at least for prolonged grieving practices, right? But I would say if you are a woman and you've ever had a miscarriage or you are a father and you've lost your uh, child, um, it's normal to grieve forever, right? Your landscape's been changed and, and that's not going to shift back if you've ever lost a spouse or, or just someone you love dearly. Your, your landscape is forever changed. So... Um, So we start with Freud, and we really see a couple of early kind of the the fetishization of grief, if you will. Um, Really, people are looking at grief as a pathology, Um, and I will jump to, you know, the DSM-5, for example, says that any grief beyond two weeks is considered um, abnormal, and therefore qualifies for um, treatment, and uh, counseling under the insurance plan. Part of that is so that you can actually be covered under your insurance for grief counseling. But part of the problem with that is it's it's this further stigmatization of grief, right? Because there's this implicit message that if you grieve for more than two weeks, that's not normal. Then we jump ahead into Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Almost everyone is familiar with her. She becomes really famous in the 70s and 80s, talks about the five stages of denial. Nile, Anger, Bargaining, Depression, and Acceptance. But she actually wrote her book about the dying process and the dying patient and the emotions that a dying person will feel when they realize they're dying. She doesn't write about grief. So the problem is that... Because there's nothing really out there to help people through the grieving process, there's no real grief toolkit to access. Everyone jumps on Kubler-Ross's five stages, and they're like, oh, this is great. This is what we can use to help us through the grief process. But it doesn't work. Stage-based models don't
0: work. Who, who, who and- popularized? Who, who, who was the one that made that connection that since we don't have anything, let's just use this over here since this is so popular?
1: I don't know. I feel like it's popular culture mostly. I feel like it's just yeah, I'm not really sure. I'm not sure where these um the misapplication comes in.
0: And it's also it's it's very linear too, isn't it, with these stages?
1: Yeah, so the stages they imply that you're going to work through each stage right that you're not gonna just um that you're not gonna oscillate between various stages
0: so we have these you know these problems here with this is all that we have so there's not much of it that's the foundation that that elizabeth kubler ross sets um obviously it's not you know it's it's not linear and it it, it deals with the person who's dying not those who are dealing with the, the the death of their loved one and so um, who started, right. who, who started retweeting? Were you a part of this retweaking process since you've been doing this for so long? I mean, you are one of the top death scholars in the nation from what I understand. I'm going to say that you might not, but from my research, yes, you are.
1: <laughs> well, I love the death stuff. I will say, I think there's some really great um, grief theorists out there. Strobe and Shoot would be one. They do the dual process model of grief. Um, and this one, they suggest that you kind of oscillate between two polar opposites of what's called loss orientation. So, feeling the loss of someone who's died, and then the restoration orientation, where you feel okay for a few days, right? So, Tobin are like, hey, you're going to feel awful. And then you're going to need a break from feeling awful and you're going to feel okay. And you're just going to go back to your everyday life. And that's okay too. When you're ready, you can go back to feeling awful for a while. So they kind of go back and forth and their model really is what healthy grief looks like. It's not stage-based. You're not just going to move through and not feel bad again. Um, So I love strobe and Schutz model. There's also um, Ken Doka. He's another one. He talks about instrumental grieving um, versus intuitive grieving. And some people are instrumental grievers. That means that you just want to get busy. When you can't deal with something, you just get lost in your work. You get busy. You go and organize. You make food for people. This is just how you deal with it. And the intuitive griever just falls apart. Right. They're like, I'm gonna sit here and cry for two weeks in my corner. Go away, let me cry. So and and he does a lot of work on this saying that this is just what people do. So a lot of people, they're like, Oh, I haven't dealt with my grief because I've just been burying myself in work. And Doka is like, that might be how you're dealing with your grief. You might be burying yourself in your work. And that's okay too.
0: I mean, would you say that it would if what what if it's all one thing and not all these so like somebody who buries themselves in their work and somebody who sits on their couch and you know eats a bunch of cheetos and drinks a lot of beer or whatever that's that's probably what i would do i don't
1: know yeah i think i think you kind of want to do both you know but the point is that people deal with grief in different ways and it looks really different on different
0: people yeah uh, I have uh, a friend recently, not to mention this person's name, who had their own grief, but it wasn't with death, but it was a death of a situation, and and it was actually I, I kind of related to a degree because we have a, a death of a situation as well, leaving leaving Denver and family and family friends, family is what they say these days, and and moving to a you know a new place at this stage in life, and so my my buddy was talking to his counselor, and I feel like that counselor is using this model of grief saying that it's, you're going to go back and forth with like, you're kind of excited about this new place, but also this place is not your old place. And so it's going to be sad. And then you're going to try to get motivated again. And then you're going to, and it, he says "I he's had to deal with the back and forth and that's a new concept for him as well. Um, so I'm wondering if we could apply this to d- different areas of loss, um,
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think a lot of people have experienced loss with COVID, and you know, a loss of routines that they found very comforting, um, a loss of expectations. I mean, you know, last year when people were graduating and they had to do the drive-through graduations, and yeah, there. I mean, this applies to all kinds of losses, and and the whole point is that it's learning to live with the loss and. Um, figuring out how to live with the loss, right? Not to get rid of the loss or to move past the loss or um, to go beyond the loss. The idea is how do you adjust your life so that you you are living with the loss and acknowledging that the loss has changed
2: your world? I think that's such an important message that I just, if there's one thing that I could tell people that are grieving, like this isn't just something you go through and it ends this, it's okay that it doesn't end. I I just have seen that in, in several situations where there's this desire to like get over it and they feel guilt and shame because they can't get over it. And I mean, you've lost in these case, you've lost someone that was critical to your life. You're not going to get over it. Um, And but I think our culture has just, you know, solidified that so much.
1: Yeah, and that's where I don't like um, the Kubler-Ross five stages because it implies that you're somehow going to move beyond it instead of learning how to live with it. I mean, even the happy times look different, right? So yeah. now you're getting married, but mom's no longer there. And so you miss her and or you have your first child and dad's not around or grandpa's not around. I mean, all of these joyful moments will now have a little bit of loss included in them, right? Yeah. So yeah absolutely
0: Do you think one of the main problems at least in the west in our current situation is that we we don't value the elderly thus we don't really know what to do when it comes to death and so we we're so focused on being young and staying young and you know being fit and healthy is great but we're seemingly doing it for the wrong reasons you know because of the hollywood culture and vanity and all that and Vanity Fair and entertainment. And and so we just kind of kick the elderly to the curb. And so then does that, do you think that affects how we deal with grief? Because the last days are just, we just shove it and we just ignore it. And our, our, I mean, I don't want to get into our, I think that's a whole other conversation, right, with with how we handle the elderly and the dying and palliative care. But like, for instance, here in Central Texas, from my understanding, that's not really, it's not a value. It's not important, palliative care.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I think part of it is we've moved dying out of the home, right? So when people get old, they go to a nursing home. We don't, I mean, part of it is we don't really have the resources. When we don't have extended families living um, or several generations living together, it becomes a lot harder too. So I, I don't think it's just that we don't care. It's just we actually don't have the infrastructure anymore with the way our current society is structured to provide that kind of care either and and so you have these sandwich generations that are trying to care for their parents or trying to care for their children um i think that's really hard so sometimes what ends up happening is we move people who are dying or who are in their older years, we move them out of the home and into nursing homes, right? So we disappear them. We don't see them. We outsource their care just like we outsource the care for the sick in hospitals. And then we outsource the care of the dead to funeral homes. So I, I think that's created a ton of changes just socially. And then we kind of don't talk about grief. We, we don't, I mean, I think about that song. Uh, we don't talk about Bruno, right? We don't talk about <laughs> grief.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you see this playing out with COVID right now? Like, I feel like we need to be having a kind of culture wide discussion of grief, and I'm not seeing that happen. How does how does this grief discussion play out inside of something like a mass um, experience like this?
1: Yeah, Janelle, I'm not seeing that happen either. And I will say when when COVID first hit, I kind of thought, oh, yay, now now is my moment. Like I'm finally going to be able to talk about death and people are going to want to have these conversations. But instead what happened, it became really politicized. And then, you know, we started talking about Pre-existing conditions and older people. So we started kind of shifting the blame right in order. I mean, that's the length we'll go to to avoid having these tough conversations. So I think that's super problematic. So I think right now, um, I really have been telling people we need to have trauma informed grief practices and trauma-informed grief models, because now we're not just dealing with grief, we're dealing with trauma on top of that grief, right? And the inability to gather for so long and the inability to share these experiences. And we've all felt so isolated, but on top of that, there's been so much death that people haven't been able to come together to support each other because they're all dealing with their own trauma and their own grief. And I think you see that in any kind of mass casualty event. So the war in Ukraine right now, um, you're seeing that there. I mean, when everyone's going through something, it's really hard to be there for anyone else, right?
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: I'd like to get into this, uh, this continuing bonds theory. I find that incredibly fascinating mostly because I don't think I was ever taught that that was okay. So if you could just define that and the origin of that, first off, and then yeah. help us kind of wrap our minds and our, our bodies around like what that could look like to a body that's no longer here.
1: Sure. So one of my favorite grief models is, it's called um, Continuing Bonds Theory, or CBT. It was developed by Class uh, Silverman, and Nick Mim. And it was developed mainly because Dennis Class went to Japan and lived in Japan for a while and did field work. And as he was there, um, he was thinking about the role of ancestors and the way in which. Um, Having an ancestor in the home can help you work through your grief. So in Japan, what you know, if you're say a traditional Japanese Buddhist, so in Japan there's a saying that um, Shinto deals with life and Buddhism deals with death. So if you are born or you get married, you have a Shinto celebration. But if you die, then you have a Buddhist celebration. So it's very common for um, Japanese people to. Have a Buddhist funeral. And um, as a graduate student, I lived in Japan. I studied at, at Taisho University for a semester, which is a Buddhist university. Um, and I actually went to my Japanese teacher's house. Um, her name was Nishikage sensei, and uh, she lived up in uh, the northern part of the island. And her father had just died, and she said, you know, I hope you don't mind, but we're going to put you in the living room where we have my father. And by that, she meant where we have his tablet. So there's a picture of him, a tablet that had his name on it and then uh, offerings. So you leave food there, their favorite drink. If they smoke, you leave cigarettes. If they drink, you leave alcohol. And then you you say prayers and burn incense and burn candles. And so you do that for one year following a death. And so that's where I slept. And I found it very comforting because you know her dad was watching over me while I slept. But I'm sure this is similar to the experience that Dennis Class had when he went to Japan where he got to see That in Japan, when someone dies, you you put them in the home for a year and you care for them for that first year following their death. And um, so this is kind of the idea of continuing bonds. They continue to be a part of your life. They're in a new state. They're in a new form um they're no longer there in person but you still make room for them in your daily life so we can do that here in the west we can set a space for them at the table let's say you have thanksgiving or christmas or easter whatever holiday that that you observe and you simply set a place for them at the table um you can honor them you know dia de los muertos has really kind of made this practice a little bit more accepted and more well known here in the United States um, where you put a picture of the deceased uh, and you set up a little altar and you make offerings to them. So the idea is simply that you're making room for the dead and that your relationship with the dead is not a static one, but it's one that continually changes and it also has value and meaning to you. Now this theory is really, Commonly studied in Europe, but we haven't really seen it take off here in the United States. And I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of continuing bond series. So um, I really would love to see it gain more acceptance here.
0: How have you, I mean, you've talked about your personal experience early on. How have you seen it, um, if any, in the West or in your time over in Europe? Um, like what are what are some other examples? You've given you given a few. Have you experienced any outside of the one that you know, when you were living in, in that, in that room.
1: Of continuing bonds to your Yeah,
0: yeah. Things that you like, it, like, hey, this was great. Uh, this allowed me to connect with this loved one and, or a friend of yours that was working through this.
1: Yeah, so I will say, you know, the early Christians did this in Rome. Um, Peter Brown writes about the feeding tubes at the um, Christian tombs uh, and how they had little tubes and you would pour wine down to the tubes of the tombs. So it's not, it's not weird for Christians. It's just not something we've done for a long time. In the Midi- Middle Ages, we would um, Catholics would do what's called, uh, they had sin eaters or corpse cakes, and you would take like, and this is really interesting practice because it also addressed food insecurity in the community so you would basically put a cake onto the body of a dead person and it would absorb all their sins so that they would be better off and they go to purgatory in their afterlife and then that cake was given to someone uh, who was quote unquote a sin eater and you would also give them some a few coins uh, you would pay them so basically you would have food insecurity addressed, but at the same time, they're helping the wealthy and there is like a real power imbalance there. So I do want to acknowledge that. So the wealthy would have the poor eat their sins. Right. So I don't like that part, but it it is an interesting way in which the community works together to kind of tie religious uh matters with these kind of more practical matters or mundane uh matters. In terms of personal experience, I think um I don't know, I sometimes have dreams. Like anytime I'm going through something difficult, it's weird because my brother or my mom, they both died years ago. My brother or my mom will show up in my dreams and they'll just kind of hang out with me. And I feel so comforted by that. Like and there's, you know, dreams are biblical. They're in the Bible. And, and you know, we, we don't really talk about dreams today, except maybe more evangelical expressions of Christianity. But um, so I, I love that. Like when I'm having a hard time, one of them shows up and I'm like, oh, right. Even my grandma, my grandma will come sometimes too. Every once in a while, I'm like, oh, are, are they coming to get me? Is it my time? Or, <laughs> But
2: most of the time, I'm really happy that they've come and visited me. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology podcast. This was our first episode with Dr. Candy Can, and we'll bring you more next week. If you'd like to know more about Brew Theology, you can find us at brewtheology.org, at brewtheology on Instagram and Facebook, and at brew underscore theology on Twitter. If you'd like to start your own chapter, please reach out to Janelle or Ryan at brewtheology.org. We hope to see you next week. Cheers!